Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Themes in Greek Society and Culture Chapter 20 The Past and the Present Receptions of Ancient Greece by Ara Suxi. The past is never dead. It's not even past. In the very act of reading this book, you are participating in a long and complex history of engagement with ancient Greece. Beginning with the ancient Greeks themselves, people have looked back over the long distance of time to an early Greek past, and also brought that past forward into their present place and moment, for various purposes. We are still intensely interested in the ancient Greeks after more than 3,000 years, though we all live in a world that has changed radically from that of Homeric Epic, Sappho, or Euripides, many of us on continents entirely unknown to them. Classical studies as a discipline continues to flourish on most university campuses, while both in high art, from painting to poetry, and in popular culture, from Hollywood to computer games, the ancient Greek world is reimagined over and over again. How is it that a culture from a world so far removed from ours in space, time, and experience could have so much potential for new creations of meaning? By studying its fragmentary remains, the discipline of classical studies has long preoccupied itself with trying to recover the ancient past, including an understanding of the people who lived in ancient Greece. But every society, each generation, indeed each individual, reads Greek culture differently. The field of reception studies has become extremely important for addressing the tensions and resonances that exist among diverse and often competing interpretations. Part of the work of reception studies involves identifying the influence and impact of ancient Greek culture on the thought and imaginations of people living in different times and places. Just as importantly, though, reception studies also help us gain a self-awareness of what we ourselves bring from our own lived experiences to our readings of the past. Reception studies challenges the traditional ways in which classical scholars engage with the past by insisting on the difficulty of fully comprehending that past. At the same time, it invites us to see new meanings in the Greek past, meanings arising from every instance of contact with that past. However, this contact may be mediated. As Charles Martindale, a pioneer of the study of the reception of classical cultures, insists, meaning is always realized at the point of reception. This chapter will explore selected moments of reception in the continuous survival of ancient Greek literary culture to the present. First, to illustrate Martin's point, we will perform an exemplary case study from just some of the many uses over time of one specific episode from the Iliad. The description of Hephaestus' elaborate crafting of Achilles' great shield from Book 18. This immensely influential passage, embedded in the early Greek epic about events during the Trojan War, is an example of ekphrasis, a verbal description of a work of visual art. As such, 
it has become emblematic of an expression of the relationship between two universals of human culture, art and war. In the first part of this chapter, we will consider a series of responses, each one informed by those that came before, to the Iliad's Shield of Achilles. Our discussion will then move beyond the reception of Achilles' shield to focus on a selection of recent and roughly contemporary examples of the reception of Greek literary culture that make powerful new uses of an entrenched tradition so as to draw attention to the perspectives of those whose voices and experiences have been marginalized. Introduction This chapter will first survey just some of the responses to Achilles' shield in literature from classical Greece up to our own time, and discuss how each one, as an instance of reception, creates new meaning and dialogue with the ancient text. Such receptions not only result in reinterpretations of the relationship between art and war, but our reading of each subsequent text also transforms our understanding of the Iliad itself. Reception thus works in at least two directions in the generation of interpretive possibilities. We will begin by showing how the Iliad's description of the shield was significant within the epic itself, and then go on to look at how it has been used to bring added dimensions of meaning at a number of points of artistic reception, including the Roman Virgil's epic poem, The Aeneid, W.H. Auden's modern lyric poem, The Shield of Achilles, and the contemporary American poet Louise Gluck's The Triumph of Achilles. We will then move beyond this chronological case study of the reception of Achilles' shield to consider a selection of recent reimaginings of other influential texts from the Greek literary tradition. In this part of the chapter, we will highlight the works of American poet Rita Dove, Canadian Métis playwright Mary Clements, and British novelist Pat Barker. The Iliad's Shield of Achilles and its Reception The Iliad is an artwork in the form of an epic poem about the violence of war. Its elaborate description of the forging of Achilles' shield in Book 18 highlights a process in which the master craftsman of the gods, Hephaestus, creates an artistic image of the world on the shield that Achilles will carry into battle. The epic poem and the shield both bring the realms of art and violent warfare into contact. The shield thus becomes, in the epic, much more than just an effective piece of defensive armor for the hero Achilles. It is also emblematic of artistic creation itself, and one of Greek culture's earliest surviving instances of a work of art reflecting on its own significance and place in the world. As such, it has invited a series of artistic and theoretical responses from subsequent generations, beginning with the ancient Greeks themselves. In the Iliad, Achilles, son of a divine mother and a mortal father, is the greatest hero fighting on the Greek side. He wins his heroic glory, or Cleos, by risking his life to inflict violence against the Trojans and their allies. Achilles demonstrates his aristia, or heroic excellence, by leaving a multitude of dead enemies on the battlefield, which are catalogued by the poem as a memorial to heroic action. The heroic model, however, is problematic, even within the world of the Iliad. Achilles inflicts violence to serve a Greek program of revenge. In the broader narrative context of the Greek expedition against Troy, that revenge is exacted for the Trojan Paris' abduction of Helen, wife of the Greek king Menelaus. But for Achilles, when he re-enters the battle after a long period of aggrieved withdrawal, the revenge he seeks is personal. For the death of his dear companion, 
Patroclus, killed in battle by the Trojan Hector. The problem is that while violent revenge in the world of the poem is generally condoned as a form of justice, Achilles' violence becomes so excessive that the gods must eventually intervene. In the Iliad, it is always understood that Achilles is the greatest Greek warrior, but it is only in Book 20, close to the end of the poem, that we first find him actually engaged in battle. Achilles' quarrel with Agamemnon in Book 1 led to his withdrawal from the action of war. During this time, we learn about his character as a warrior from others. Hector's wife, Andromache, in Book 6, speaks of Achilles' respect for his victims in war. Achilles killed her father and all seven of her brothers, but Andromache notes that he gave her father a beautiful funeral and accepted ransom for her mother, whom he had taken captive, so that she could return home. In fact, Achilles' conflict with King Agamemnon in Book 1 arose from his insistence that Agamemnon accept ransom from the father of a young woman captured in battle and allotted as a prize of honor to the king. When Agamemnon is forced against his inclination to return the captive woman, he takes Achilles' own captive, Briseis, for himself. In the Iliad, the focus is not on the experiences of these women, but on the feelings of the men who dispute over the women as property. After the insult to his honor, Achilles refuses to fight, even when, in Book 9, his closest comrades plead with him to return to the battlefield and defend them against Hector, now poised to set fire to the Greek ships. Only after Hector kills Patroclus, Achilles' beloved companion, does Achilles finally become not just willing, but raging to fight. However, he had given Patroclus his own armor, which was then taken as a trophy by Hector. Having lost both his friend and his armor to Hector, Achilles is driven by grief and rage, but unable to enter battle. His divine mother Thetis responds by asking Hephaestus, the god of technological fire, to forge a set of armor for his son. Because he is the son of a goddess who can provide him with divine armor, Achilles is enabled to enact his violent revenge on Hector and the Trojans with a more than human supernatural force. He fights not only against men, but also against gods, against ritual order, and against the landscape itself. In his vengeful rage, Achilles kills scores of Trojans and their allies, cruelly ignoring his victim's request that he accept a ransom from their families. The river Scamander itself, choked with corpses, rises up to fight against him. Achilles at last engages with Hector and is on the point of killing him. Hector admits defeat and, on the verge of death, requests that Achilles return his body to his family for burial. I beseech you by your life, by your knees and by your parents. Do not leave me by the ships for the Achaeans' dogs to feast on, but accept the bronze and the gold and plenty and the gifts which my father and lady mother will give you, and give my body back home again, so that the Trojans and their wives may give me my share of fire when I am dead. Achilles has a savage response to Hector's request. You, dog. Do not implore me by my knees or by my parents. If only my strength and spirit would drive me to cut up your raw flesh and eat you myself, such things you have done. The man does not exist who could keep the dogs from your head, not even if they should come here and set ten times, twenty times the ransom, and promise still more. The dogs and the birds will feast on every part of you. 
Achilles then proceeds to routinely outrage Hector's corpse by tying it to his chariot and dragging the body behind him in the dirt. As Stephen Scully points out, even while Achilles carries a miraculous image of the entire beautiful world on his shield, he is engaged in the destruction of that same world until the gods finally intervene. Order is restored, and Achilles recovers his humanity only when, in his meeting with Priam in Book 24, he has laid aside his armor and lets go of his obsessions with revenge. The divine shield carried by Achilles in the Iliad, because it is a gift of a god, authorizes him as an agent of destruction on the battlefield. At the same time, with its miraculously crafted surface, it is emblematic of the larger cosmic and cultural order within which the world of war, which occupies the overwhelming majority of the Iliad, is contextualized. The long account of the forging of Achilles' shield by the god Hephaestus takes up most of Book 18 of the Iliad. The shield is miraculous because the god adorns it with an image that could not possibly be contained on any real object. Not only does the surface of the shield encompass what could be understood as an image of the entire cosmic order, it also wondrously depicts this world in living, moving detail. As a description of a work of art, or a crassis, the account of the crafting of Achilles' shield can also be read as a reflection on the composition of the epic poem itself, as a comparable artistic achievement the impossibly vast scope of the scenes depicted on Achilles' shield is divinely ambitious, including not only the starry sky and the ocean that encircles the earth, but also scenes of human life in rural and urban settings, in violent wars and peaceful interactions, engaged in labor and leisure. It is this shield that Achilles, the glorious hero of the epic, carries with him when he at last returns to battle to slaughter countless Trojans. The death of Hector himself at the hands of Achilles in this glorious armor is a tragic and pivotal episode in the poem. While he wears the armor made for him by Hephaestus and given to him by his divine mother, Achilles exceeds the limit of human action on the battlefield. Doomed to die soon, he carries with him the image of the beautiful world he has already left behind with his decision to enter the battle again. The unique and divine armor marks him as supernatural in his heroic status. But he, while he wears it, he also becomes heartless and less than human, savage in his rage for vengeance. Greek and Roman Receptions of Achilles' Shield It is not possible to overestimate the place of Homeric epic in the subsequent cultural activity of Greece and Rome. The Iliad and the Odyssey, first written down sometime in the 8th and 7th centuries BCE, become canonical texts in the formal and informal educations of Greeks and Romans throughout antiquity. It is not an exaggeration to say that virtually all of Greek literature in some ways responds to Homeric epic and was composed by authors who could rely on their audience's common knowledge of the Iliad and the Odyssey. For example, as a series of events already far in the mythic past for the Greeks of 5th century Athens, the Trojan War and its aftermath, as narrated in the Homeric poems, offered paradigms for heroic action that were both emulated and problematized in the Athenian tragedy. 
The Homeric hero's quest for unique and individual glory or revenge in battle expressed a set of values that did not fit seamlessly with the need for cooperative action in the democratic polis. Athens' military supremacy relied on the collaboration of hoplite phalanxes on the battlefield, on the synchronized exertions of the rowers of naval triremes at sea, and on consensus in the assembly for the determination of civic policies. Sophocles, Ajax. Sophocles' tragedy, Ajax, circa 440 BCE, illustrates the problematic place of the Trojan War hero in the imagination of a new socio-political order. This play dramatizes the tragic legacy of the armor of Achilles after his death. At the funeral games of Achilles, Thetis offered his armor as a prize to be awarded to the best of the Achaeans. Achilles himself was praised for his excellence in both speech and action. The two contestants who emerged to claim his armor divided these qualities between them. Ajax was second only to Achilles in his accomplishments on the battlefield, and Odysseus was valued as a persuasive speaker and strategist. In the end, the arms were awarded to Odysseus, and Ajax feels a deep injury to his honor. Ajax responds to the insult by setting out to murder the military leadership. In Sophocles' play, Athena protects Ajax's targets by making him delusional, so that his violence is instead inflicted on the army's livestock. Humiliated by his inglorious failure, Ajax kills himself. There follows a debate about whether he should be honored with a proper burial as a soldier who had done great deeds for the Greeks, or left unburied as an enemy of the army. The armor of Achilles, the divine gift that had singled out the hero of the Iliad during his action on the battlefield, is now, on the Athenian stage, a cause of conflict within the ranks and the loss of a valued comrade. In 5th century Athens, the actions exemplified by the Homeric heroes are held up for admiration, even as they are recognized as destructive to an ordered political or military unit that relies on cooperative values. Virgil's Aeneid, 29-19 BCE The ancient Romans defined themselves in many ways through extended references to the Greeks they had conquered. Virgil's epic poem, the Aeneid, is perhaps the best-known literary work from ancient Rome. Composed under the reign of Augustus, the Aeneid responds to Greek epic, among many other intertexts, even while it comments extensively on Augustan Rome, with its own legendary Trojan heritage. In the Aeneid, Homeric epic is refashioned into a complex literary reflection on the Roman state, by means of a mythic narrative of Rome's founding by the ascendants of Aeneas, a refugee from Troy. In Book 8, there is a lengthy description of Vulcan, Hephaestus's Roman counterpart, forging at the goddess Venus's request, a shield for her son Aeneas. The ekphrastic passage is an unmistakable allusion to the Iliad's shield of Achilles. Venus delivers the shield to Aeneas as he enters battle for the first time on Italian soil, where he will claim a new land for his Trojan followers. The Aeneid's depiction of Aeneas's shield is one of several elusive elements in the poem that encourage Virgil's audience to set the Roman hero on the same level as the Homeric Achilles, or Odysseus, and, by implication, to set Virgil on the same level as the legendary Homer. 
At the same time, the marked difference between what is depicted on each shield are meaningful indicators of the distinct worldviews and context of the two poems. Consider, for example, the excerpt in box 20.2. In the Iliad, Hephaestus forged on Achilles' shield a generic view of the entire cosmic order, including unnamed cities at war and peace, and unnamed people at work and play. These were encompassed in a universalizing landscape surrounded by sky and ocean to form a spatial representation of the universe without reference to any particular recognizable place or moment in time. In the Aeneid, by contrast, Vulcan depicts on the shield known events from Rome's history. Although these events are in the future from the perspective of Aeneas, who delights in them though he cannot understand them, from the point of view of Virgil's reader, they are recognizable episodes from their own history. Indeed, the central image on the shield illustrates an event from the living memory of Virgil's contemporaries. The Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, in which Octavian, later called Augustus, was victorious over his challengers for Rome's rule, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. This decisive battle ended years of civil war in Rome and consolidated Augustus's rule over an extensive Roman Empire. Aeneas' shield thus not only represents an extended allusion to the Iliad and its hero Achilles, but also incorporates that Greek epic tradition into a prophetic vision, from Aeneas' perspective, of the whole history of Rome. The description of the shield thus reflects on the Aeneid as a work of art in two ways, by inviting comparisons with the art of Achilles' shield in the earlier Greek epic, and also with Virgil's own composition of the Aeneid itself. Virgil's epic shield depicts a cosmic order that is not generic, like that of Achilles' shield, but rather consists of specific references to Rome's military conquests. Aeneas' shield, like that of Achilles, thus corresponds to the epic in which it appears. The Aeneid ties the recent history of the Roman nation to a mythic past originating in the Trojan War of Greek myth. Aeneas lifts the shield to carry the image of the glory and destiny of his line onto the Italian battlefield, just as he had lifted onto his shoulders his aged father Anchises when he fled the burning ruins of Troy from the Aeneid Book Two. In the Aeneid, Aeneas is characterized by his pietas, or sense of duty to something greater than himself, the founding of the future Roman nation as ratified by the gods. The images on the shield thus link the Aeneid's readers, live witnesses of the Battle of Actium and its aftermath, with the mythical past of Troy. Rome's future history, depicted on the shield by a god, authorizes Aeneas's violence against the indigenous populations of the Italian land that he is claiming for his followers and their descendants. At the same time, the Aeneid's readers recognize an artistic connection with the heroic world of the Homeric epic. The Shield in the Modern World W.H. Auden's The Shield of Achilles, 1952 When W.H. Auden wrote his famous poem, The Shield of Achilles, in a volume of the same title, he could rely on the fact that his readers had studied the Iliad in school. In 1952, the horrors of two world wars were still vivid in living memory, and the Cold War was casting an ominous shadow over several traumatized nations. For this audience, Auden's poem, in a carefully crafted framework of stanzas with alternating lyric patterns, 
reimagines Thetis' presence in Hephaestus' workshop as he crafts a shield for her son. Seabox 20.3 The poem's title and its narration of Hephaestus forging Achilles' shield invite its readers to recall the graceful images of the miraculous cosmic order depicted on the shield of Achilles in the Iliad, and Achilles' joy in the beauty of the armor when he received it from Thetis. In Auden's poem, Thetis peers over Hephaestus' shoulder, seeking on the shield's surface the emergence of the images known from the Iliad. We, too, as readers, strain in vain to find in Auden's shield something recognizable from the beautiful artistic vision of the Iliad. The Iliad's shield set one scene of battle in the context of, and perhaps wage for, a larger natural and social order of beauty, justice, civic activity, feasting, and dance. It thus seemed to advocate for the place of a measure of contained conflict in an ordered universe, one in which men could win glory in contests against others. But neither Audenstatus nor his readers can find anything to recognize with pleasure in his vision of a modern world in which horrific violence is only meaningful as a symptom of the most banal evil. Auden's poem thus comments ironically not only on the inglorious and dehumanizing obscenity of war, but also on the vulgar motives for violence in a hopelessly totalitarian context. Finally, through the direct allusion to the shield of the Iliad, Auden reflects on the role of art as implicated at various points in human history in the glorification of war. Like his own Hephaestus, Auden refuses to participate in this process of glorification. As in the Iliad and the Aeneid, the making of the shield in Auden's poem can be read as an image for the relationship of art to the violence of war. Furthermore, it references a long and recognizable tradition of similar scenes, thus significantly revising our reaction to the earlier poems in light of a more pessimistic vision of war and its effects. Louise Gluck's The Triumph of Achilles, 1985 Louise Gluck became Poet Laureate of the United States in 2003 and won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2020. Gluck's work often draws on ancient Greek literature to explore topics of a highly personal and subjective nature, such as love, loss, and grief. By expressing these intimate subjects through the familiar stories of Greek myth, Gluck achieves both a kind of cool detachment, since Greek myth is a world far removed from her own, and also a sense of permanence because of the enduring presence of myth in her cultural tradition. Her poetry can be compared to that of the ancient Greek lyric poet Sappho, who in poems like her fragment 16 employs the Trojan War story to focus on the experience of love as more compelling than the charisma of a military expedition. Sappho thus resists Epic's project of the exaltation of men-at-arms. Like Sappho, Gluck subverts the epic glorification of heroes in battle with her treatment of personal attachment, loss, and grief. Gluck's poem, The Triumph of Achilles, was published in a volume of the same title in 1985. Although this poem does not refer explicitly to the shield of Achilles, the shield is manifestly conspicuous in its absence. Gluck's replacement of the word shield in the title of the, both the poem and the collection seems to refer directly to Auden's The Shield of Achilles, which had become an icon of modern poetry. 
Gluck's poem highlights the circumstances that led to the making of Achilles' shield, the loss of Patroclus, who wore the same armor as Achilles, and the divine response to that loss. She relies on her reader's awareness that Achilles' mother responds to his grief by procuring the divine shield. But Gluck focuses instead on the god's realization that Achilles is already dead, a victim of the part that loved. In responding here, not only to the Iliad, but also to Auden's The Shield of Achilles, and its final reminder that Thetis' son would not live long, she moves away from Auden's moralizing commentary on the failure of responsibility and compassion in the context of massive mechanized war, to name love as the center of personal vulnerability. Recovering the experience of the individual warrior, Gluck in part resurrects a world in which one could weep because another wept. Like the other works considered in this chapter, Gluck's poem also comments self-reflectively on the artistic process. Although the poem's title is The Triumph of Achilles, the first line announces the story of Patroclus. This tactic underscores the fact that the same story can be told from different points of view. Later in the poem, she wryly observes, The legends cannot be trusted. Their source is the survivor, the one who has been abandoned. In Gluck's poem, shown in box 20.4, it is personal loss, not public glory, that gives rise to poetry and is memorialized by it. Each of the texts considered here expresses a different perspective on the Iliad's shield of Achilles, from Sophocles' problematization of the individualistic glory bestowed on the heroes of Homeric epic, to Virgil's historicizing vision of his mythic Trojan hero, to Auden's bleak picture of mechanized and meaningless violence, and finally to Gluck's meditation on personal loss and narrative authority. In each case, the shield reflected a world structured around the violence of war and exemplifies an artistic response to that world. We have seen how the Iliad's description of the shield of Achilles has become a part of the meaning generated by several later artistic expressions. It is important to consider that seemingly paradoxically, a poem like Auden's or Gluck's can in turn influence our reading of the earlier passage from the Iliad. Our exposure to Auden's vision of the horrors of a world and society that war has been deprived of color and compassion brings a new dimension to our reading of that early Homeric vision of cosmic order that Hephaestus and the poet composed on the shield for Achilles to carry into battle. Beyond the Shield of Achilles, Disrupting the Canon The classic works of ancient Greek culture continue to be reimagined by contemporary writers and artists many of whom are encountering them from perspectives radically different from those of the ancient Greeks or those who problematically idealize ancient Greek culture as a model of civilization. In this next section of the chapter, we leave behind the exemplary case study of receptions of Achilles' shield to consider three contemporary authors who have each engaged with ancient Greek culture from a resistant posture and reshaped it into powerful new art with an array of complex meanings. Many groups, including African Americans, indigenous peoples, and women in general, have troubled relationships with the European literary tradition that has been privileged in classrooms at every level and that is associated with a legacy of patriarchy, class status, trafficking of enslaved people, and violent colonization. 
We'll consider here just three examples of work that make use of ancient Greek culture in order to resist this legacy and to reintroduce voices that have been suppressed by it. The Bonds of Divine Fate or of Oppression Rita Dove's The Darker Face of the Earth, 1994 Among many honors, the black American writer Rita Dove served as United States Poet Laureate from 1993 to 1995. In her play, The Darker Face of the Earth, from 1994, revised in 1996 and again in 2000, Dove reimagines the myth dramatized in Sophocles' tragedy, Oedipus the King, circa 430-426 BCE, in which the hero Oedipus, son of the royal family of Thebes, learns that he is fated to kill his father and marry his mother. The horrified Oedipus does everything he can think of to avoid fulfilling this fate. He fails because of his ignorance of his true origins from parents who exposed him at birth in their own attempt to avoid fate, and of his history as an adopted child. Sophocles presented Oedipus, a man at the pinnacle of his social and political sphere, as a sympathetic, if somewhat arrogant, hero who exercised his free will only to fulfill the fate he sought to avoid. Sophocles' enormously influential tragedy is about the limits of human knowledge and action within a framework of forces beyond human control. Dove adapts Sophocles' play about a child who survives his father's attempt to kill him at birth and grows up to sleep with his mother, setting her story on a plantation in South Carolina before the American Civil War. Institutionalized enslavement and gender hierarchies constrain the lives of its characters, in spite of their attempts to shape their own destinies. The plantation owner's wife, Amalia, has an affair with one of the enslaved men, Hector, and becomes pregnant. When the dark-skinned child is born, her husband, Louis, in spite of the fact that he has fathered several children of his own by having intercourse with women enslaved on his plantation, feels humiliated by the evidence of his wife's infidelity and persuades her to send the baby away. He hides his riding spurs in the baby blankets, intending that they will cut the baby to death on the journey. The child is scarred but survives, is named Augustus, and grows to manhood enslaved to a captain of a slaving ship, who provides him with an education in classical literature. After the death of the captain, Augustus rebels against his enslavement and escapes from several enslavers in succession, until he is eventually purchased to work on the same plantation where he was born. There, like his father before him, he becomes the love of Amalia, with whom he shares a knowledge of classical literature that sets him apart from the other enslaved on the plantation. Augustus leads a rebellion against the owners, which involves him in the murder of his father Hector. The play ends in Augustus' murder of the plantation owner, whom he believes to be his father, and the suicide of Amalia when she realizes the nature of her relationship to Augustus. In attributing a cause for this tragedy, Dove's play shifts the focus from Sophocles' emphasis on his hero's struggle against unavoidable divine fate to expose the inevitability of the corruption and hopeless moral impasse of the historical conditions of chattel slavery. In his very attempts to escape those historical conditions into which he was born, Augustus, in spite of his intelligence and determination, is unknowingly driven back into them with fatal results. Indigenizing Troy, Mary Clement's Age of Iron, 1994. Another brilliantly executed example of a contemporary adaptation of an ancient Greek tragedy is Mary Clement's play, 
Age of Iron. Clements is a Métis playwright living in British Columbia, Canada. Age of Iron premiered in 1994 at the Firehall Arts Centre, Vancouver. The play's title references a passage from Hesiod's Works and Days, circa 700 BCE, which describes a mythic age of iron in which human life has deteriorated from the blessed and virtuous existence of the Golden Age. The action of the play itself adapts Euripides' Athenian tragedy Trojan Women, circa 415 BCE. Trojan Women stages the direct aftermath of the Greek army's destruction of the people and city of Troy, from the perspective of the royal women of Troy, now enslaved by the Greeks. While the victorious Greeks prepare to set sail for home, Hecuba, Andromache, and Cassandra, the frantic prophet whom no one believes because of Apollo's curse, lament the losses of home, husbands, children, and brothers. There is a scene in which they learn that the Greeks have thrown Andromache's infant son, Astanax, from the walls of Troy to his death, and another in which a Greek messenger announces to each woman which Greek warrior has won her as an enslaved prize of war. This tragedy belongs to a classical canon for a European cultural tradition that celebrates its descent from the Trojan prince Aeneas, a refugee who settled in Italy to found the nation that would become the Roman Empire. Clements adapts Euripides' play, often quoting directly from the text, and interweaves it with traditional indigenous elements to tell a complex story of indigenous people's loss and devastation as a result of colonization by European settlers. The play is set in both the ruins of Troy and an indigenous landscape of urban Vancouver simultaneously, creating a disorienting effect that reflects the lived experience of indigenous peoples who inhabit many cultural contexts at once. Time in the play is also layered, with the action taking place in the ancient ruins of Troy, in an alley in contemporary Vancouver, and throughout the history of indigenous peoples' experience after colonization, including the removal of their children to residential schools where they frequently suffered violence and sexual assault, along with the erasure of their cultural heritage in the name of education. On the stage, there is a Trojan wall, but it is talking, moving, made of living bodies from which characters emerge and to which they return, accompanied by the music of indigenous drumming. Some of the characters have names recognizable from the Trojan myths. Hecuba is an older woman with a shopping cart and a broken doll. Cassandra is a traumatized sex worker cursed by Apollo, who is at the same time both the Greek god and a predatory priest at a residential school where the children were told there is a big house and new clothes and you get to learn to read and write and learn about Apollo. Cassandra remembers what happened to her there. Whiteness, his heat is white, and despair is white, and madness and the thoughts which race in my skull. Please, Apollo, I cannot give you myself. I am frightened. There are also traditional indigenous figures like Mother Earth, whose bounteous and beautiful bodies imprisoned in concrete, and Raven, a trickster figure and confused cultural double agent who responds with rage to the truth spoken by Cassandra, rapes her, and is taken away to be confined to a cage where he turns against himself, plucking out his own feathers. Wise Guy is a war veteran, his body full of iron, but now discarded by the country for which he fought. Like the henchmen in Euripides' play, the city cops appear to intervene in fights, take people into custody, and bring bad news of terrible losses. The system chorus, one of four choruses in the play, 
represents the social workers and other bureaucratic agents who intervene in the lives of the characters of the street. In the characters, setting, and time of the play, we see classical Greek and indigenous narrative traditions folded over and around one another. Lines from Euripides are interleaved with the language of the Vancouver streets. The original text of the colonizing European culture is fragmented and repurposed to support a staging of the losses of indigenous peoples who, like the women of Troy, have had their own children, lands, and culture taken from them, and whose voices, like Cassandra's, are not heard or believed. Works like Clement's Age of Iron and Dove's The Darker Face of the Earth engage with a European tradition that has often used Greek and Roman culture to validate patriarchal, militaristic, and colonial practices. But in doing so, they seek to name, challenge, resist, and dismantle those practices. Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls, 2018. An even more recent example of resistant engagement with the Greek literary tradition is The Silence of the Girls from 2018 by British novelist Pat Barker. This novel retells the story of the Iliad from the perspective of Achilles' enslaved captive Briseis and gives a voice to the character who, in the Iliad, as an object of conflict between Agamemnon and Achilles, has almost none. We hear Briseis' voice from the very first lines on page one. Great Achilles, brilliant Achilles, shining Achilles, godlike Achilles. How the epithets pile up. We never called him any of these things. We called him the butcher. Showing us the action of the Iliad through the eyes of the women who are displaced, enslaved, and raped by the Greek army, the novel can be compared to Euripides' Trojan women. Written over two millennia later, however, it is positioned to expose a problematic aspect of the long reception of the Greek epic, the frequent use of the Iliad's glorification of war as an endorsement of patriarchy and violent conquest. In these three examples by Dove, Clements, and Barker, we see writers creating art to amplify voices of resistance to oppressive systems that have often been validated in the traditional receptions of the classics of Greek literature. In order to be able to do this, these writers themselves had to draw on an education in the cultural canon of their colonialist and patriarchal oppressors, and they must rely on a similar education for their audiences in order to be understood. Questions that arise are, in what sense can it be said that these writers are effectively dismantling the structures of oppression by subverting the dominant cultural canon? Does this form of resistance risk the perpetuation of an oppressive educational and cultural regime? Any satisfactory answers to these questions will be nuanced and complex. Summary It is commonly said that ancient Greek is the dead language of an obsolete culture, but Greek culture has remained very much alive throughout many centuries as a kind of language for the continued creation of new meaning. As such, ancient Greek culture continues to be spoken by many different voices. Like any language, it presents us with a commonly recognized set of signifiers that can be used in the creation of new meaning. Like any language, Greek culture has never remained fixed and unchanging. Each new user adapted for a unique purpose, and each new adaptation expands the field of meanings made available for subsequent encounters with ancient Greek culture itself. Reception Studies explores the uses and misuses of ancient Greek culture, not only in the creation of meaning in privileged poetry and art, 
but in popular culture and marginalized discourses as well. While it may be impossible for even the most assiduous scholarship to fully recover the lived experience of the ancient Greeks, the study of their culture remains intensely relevant, largely because each point of contact in the history of its reception is rich with significance that extends in many directions across time and space. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.